Thank you for joining us for this episode. Today, we're joined by Dr. Andrew Fisher, and we're going to be talking about how to implement LippiFlow into practice on the OI Show. Hello, Dr. Fisher. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Uh, make sure to like, subscribe, and leave comments if you have any suggestions or thoughts about what we're talking about today. Dr. Fisher is uh, living in Indiana. He's going to tell us a little bit about his practice and how he started uh, a dry eye practice with the incorporation uh, or implementation of LippiFlow. Thanks for joining us, man. It's good to have you. How are you? Yeah, doing great. Thanks for having me. Excited to be yeah. here. And I hope I live up to the high bar that everybody else has said, all your other guests that have been on here. It's exciting to be here well, with you. I'm, I'm sure you will. So th for those of you who don't know, um, I... Uh, fell in love with Andrew Fisher when he was my resident here at Se in Seattle. Uh, we spent a year together, and um, he really taught me a lot, and, and we sure enjoyed spending time together uh, in the exam room. And then Andrew left and moved to Indiana. So, Andrew, what, why don't you tell us a little bit about your practice setting, what you joined, uh, and a little bit about the area where you're practicing? Yeah, so it was exciting for me to leave Seattle as much as I hated leaving you because I enjoyed the <laughs> I enjoyed the year we spent up there. Um, I miss you as much as I miss the food and the hiking. So take that for ooh, what it's worth. Ooh. But wow, um, that's good. Came back home to the to my practice that I've been a patient at forever, um, and in fact, my mom's been the office manager slash head optician here for as long as I can remember too. So it was always kind of my goal and plan to come back home and joined the practice and super blessed that everything fell in line just as it did to be able to come back home. Uh, kind of on the same time I was coming back home, they were ready for a new doctor too. So, um, mm -hmm. so it's been an established practice uh, in the area since the mid seventies, I believe. Um, I am the third doctor in the practice. Um, the practice as a whole is very kind of medically oriented. We do a lot of um, pathology mainly because it's a pretty rural setting. And, um, you know, so we have a lot of glaucoma and um, diabetes is pretty common. The other two doctors do a lot of um, kind of the retinal management, but they brought me in to serve more as a dry eye and contact lens specialist. So since I've joined, that's been a big part of, of my job here is to kind of build or integrate the dry eye and specialty lens clinics within the practice itself. Um, and so it's been kind of a slow build. I still kind of split my time half and half between specialty and primary care. Um, mm -hmm. So with the end goal of working more towards full-time specialty and less towards primary care. What, but what, um, what did dry eye look like before you got there? What was that, what was that kind of looking like from the other doctors who worked there? Mm -hmm. So for the most part, kind of broad strokes, it was mitigating a lot of the symptoms, you know, steroids for inflammatory type or bad staining, artificial tears, heat compresses, um, kind of the entry level, I guess what I call the baby steps or the, the first step treatments to try to make the patient feel better out of the gate. Uh, but mm -hmm. outside of that, there wasn't much more, you know, what's the next step or how do we manage and control the symptoms and the signs as we go forward with the, the disease process. So um, that's kind of where they brought me in to analyze things a little bit differently than they did and uh, yeah. kind of manage that care as that patient goes forward with their treatment. Yeah. So during a residency here at, 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 at Specialty Eye, 
we incorporate a lot of dry eye. You read a lot of papers. You, you, you know, knowing you were going to leave, you were going to go and really become part of a dry eye practice or incorporate dry eye. What steps did you make when you first joined the practice? Like, what were the first couple of months? How did you start making a transition into becoming a dry eye specialist in your area? Um, good question. Really, when I first started, um, and, and still is a large majority of, of some of my dry eye patients, it's all internal referrals because we have a patient base of a lot of patients that um, – you know, we know had dry eye is documented in their chart that we have dry eye on them. And there's just, you know, we didn't have what we needed to, I guess, fully analyze the patient and, and take the next step in not only mitigating their current symptoms, making their symptoms better, um, making the signs in their eyes better, but we've kind of transitioned more into our dry eye clinic, be a lot more preventative because we have the tools that we can kind of do quick screenings um, a little bit easier during our exams now. Um, but just kind of one, getting the word out there because in, in my area, there's not really a, I guess, a specialist for specifically dry eye related treatment. Mm -hmm. um, it's more than, you know, the artificial tears and heat compresses. Um, so one of the first things I did when we joined is um, one of the other doctors made like welcome baskets. So when I introduced myself around to the local um, other ODs, MDs and, and other, I guess, healthcare providers in the area, we took the basket and I kind of took five minutes of their time and just said, Hey, this is, you know, this is what I do. This is where I'm practicing and tried to get the word out more to mm -hmm. the other doctors in the area, just so they're aware of, you know, what we have here. Um, and then we also worked towards getting more diagnostic equipment. Um, so we have a keratograph that um, we do a lot, almost all of my dry eye evals on, um, or at least the more in-depth dry evaluations. Uh, we got a um, eyelid exfoliation tool um, that it's an AB Max. Um, so very similar. I think you have the Blefx in your practice. Um, so mm -hmm. similar concept. In fact, I think one of the, the inventors is the same person, if I remember right. Um, and then we have a LipoFlow as kind of our more advanced treatment for um, MGD. And so really just spreading the word was the first step, uh, but also having the tools that when we have patients, we can take those next steps to, to get them better. Yeah. So when you start incorporating, I'm going to ask about the treatment with something like lippy flow uh, or a thermal pulsation or IPL, the process would be very similar. When, when you brought in the diagnostic component, uh, you probably started charging patients for things that they had never been charged for. How did that, how did that go over and how was that communication with patients passed along? Yeah, great question. And I think I had that relatively easy because we do a lot of kind of preventative or, or baseline measurements as far as, you know, most of our patients, at least once every couple of years, we do a baseline photo. So if anything changes, we can always compare it back to retinal photo. That is, um, we do, you know, baseline visual field screeners. And if we have suspicious nerves, sometimes we'll do a, a um, optic nerve head screener just to say, well, you know, we have a baseline if anything changes. So going forward into the dry eye, we have been kind of transitioning into doing a baseline mimography, for instance. And so if in the room, their oil glands aren't functioning incredibly well, we'll do that. And kind of that's our first step approach to say, well, how is the gland structure doing, you know? And mm -hmm. um, so that transitions a li little bit easier. 
um, for the more in-depth dry eye evaluation where we take, you know, a lot more measurements. Um, it's not covered by insurances for a majority of them. Uh, anterior seg photos can be if there's, you know, staining or any pathology, but for the most part, that's out of the po- out of the pocket. And so that was at first a little more challenging um, unless the patient was incredibly symptomatic and they understand understood the value in that. But the difficult part was for those patients that are not overly symptomatic, but you can definitely see the signs on their eyes and um, things that indicate we need to look into it a little bit more in depth. And so that kind of took a lot of education and convincing mm-hmm. since a lot of the dry eye stuff was, you know, a lot, you know, more new to these patients. And so it was just a lot more time explaining why we needed to do it. Um, as opposed to, you know, for you, for instance, you get a lot of referrals that that's already kind of established as they're coming in your door. So, right. um, I think just kind of transitioning that mindset and and having patients recognize that, you know, dry eye is a, pathologic process that if we don't mitigate or treat the symptoms or signs early, it's something that progresses. And I think sure. as a whole, a lot of our patients are kind of coming around to that because it's something where even since I've been here, we've talked a lot more about it just on regular eye exams where patients don't complain about the symptoms that we are seeing the signs early on. Um, yeah. So I think just kind of getting ahead of the game and um, you know, the slow, slow drip of patient education really has helped over the last couple of years. What does that look like within the office with the, with the team, uh, all the members, you know, this is a kind of a whole new thing. You know, we've always managed dry eye, but now Dr. Fisher came in and he's telling everybody they've got really a bad condition that we didn't think was as bad before. Has it been embraced Mm -hmm. by the team? Yeah. um, And I think a big part of it is that a lot of, especially the technicians are females and they are more prone to dry eye in general, but um, a lot of them that during the training process, when we did the dry eye evaluation on the instruments that we had, they had clear signs of dry eye too. Um, and so describing what I'm seeing and kind of almost playing like psychic and saying, well, based on what I'm seeing here, you probably have these symptoms. Is that right? And they're like, oh yeah, I didn't even think about that. And so, mm-hmm. um, after, after some of the training and the, I kind of did a little lecture series, I guess, for them, uh, when I first joined. And so a lot of that kind of made sense because they were experiencing those earlier low grade symptoms too, uh, yeah. but didn't realize it was related to their ocular surface. So it was, and, uh, and, and then you, you, you decided to bring in something to the practice. You decided to bring in lippy flow, right. And uh, that, that was a, that was a big purchase in and of itself, you know, not nearly the hundred thousand dollar instrument that it used to be. Now it's sure, you know, in the 20, $30,000 range, depending on, where you buy it, when you buy it at a show and whatnot. So, uh, you know, that, that was a big, that was a big jump. And I'm sure for your patients, when you started presenting something that has more of a premium cost, uh, how, how did that process go? How did you figure out a pricing strategy? How did you, you know, figure out how to, you know, implement this so that you were using it many times during a month, not just, one and done, right? Right. Yeah. Um, so I will say I owe a lot to the owners of the practice because they're technically the ones that brought that in. Um, but I kind of beg them for it because in my, in my view, if you don't have one of the gold standard treatments for mybomine gland dysfunction, can you really call yourself a dry eye specialist or a dry eye clinic without having, you know, what's largely 
agreed upon as one of the top treatments for my bone gland dysfunction. So they saw the value in that and absolutely saw the price tag in that. But um, I think they, they also kind of agreed if we're out here to have the best for our patients, we have to make that investment on the front end. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as, as you mentioned, the biggest challenge for me in having patients agree to do that, again, being another cash pay instrument that insurance won't touch is one, having them understand what's going on. And I think my biography and, and, and my bone marrow gland imaging in general um, really helps that because if they can see structurally that their glands are not as healthy as someone who has perfect glands and perfect gland function, they definitely accept that a little bit more and, and understand what's going on. Um, but trying to f- find the right price point to cover our costs and get the machine and everything paid off, but also not deter a lot of patients from it. Um, it's still kind of an ongoing challenge. And I will say it was easier being out in Seattle in a much bigger market. Um, just, I, I just, I think different cultures as much as anything out on the West coast versus rural Midwest. Um, but that's definitely been a challenge in finding the right price point. Um, and I think as of now, there's two other practices within an hour, hour and a half or so from where we are that we're still a little bit on the cheaper end compared to those, but those other practices, but still at a point where we can say we have the best value for the patients, but still are getting what we need to covered as far as being able to pay off the machine and cover mm-hmm. our costs for staff and time and everything there too. Um, yeah. But it's just kind of been a back and forth to say, well, you know, if we had the price too high, are we getting a lot of people saying, yeah, I know I need it, but I can't do it. Or, you know, is everybody continually saying, yeah, let's go for it. And that might be an indication of, well, maybe we could raise the price to cover the costs a little bit more too. And so trying to find that sweet spot um, for the benefit of both the patient and us is really important too. But yeah. um, So you brought this instrument in, in a, in a really challenging time with COVID being the (laughs) last year. So how has the transition, you've had it for a, a little over a year uh, or so, a uh, year and a half. Um, how, is the, how has the transition been? Should somebody expect to purchase this machine and then do, you know, 37 treatments a week or something? Or how, how have you seen the growth of it? I think a lot of it depends on, I guess, how aggressive that, per, that doctor is that, is, that has that um, treatment and also how they're educating their patients to, um, I, I tend to start with, I guess what I call, like I mentioned earlier, those baby step treatments to say, well, let's at least get the, the eyelids or the lid margin or whatever as clean and clear as possible, kind of prep the eye for if we need the next step is kind of how I phrase it. And so the patients are doing, you know, heat mask and omega threes and eyelid scrubs and, you know, so on and so forth in order to best get everything started. Okay. And then over time, as we're managing their condition and and watching going forward, I tend to mention, at least on the front end, you know, here's what we can do as a slow route. But if we want to get right to the main problem, which I think is going to be the most effective, here's the lipo flow, or here's, you know, all your other vectored thermal pulsation, um, more advanced treatments. And we can go that route if you want to go straight for it. And I just kind of phrasing it that way. But to answer your question, getting the lipid flow or any other major treatment right out of the gate and thinking you're going to do 37 treatments a week would be ideal, but I don't think it's possible just because it takes a long time to 
to get to that point. Um, I think the last year and, and obviously COVID did throw a big wrench into to a lot of our, our, everybody's primary care and all of our specialized right. treatment too. But um, I think in the first quarter of this year, I did, I think about half of what I did all of last year already. And I think part of that is just, again, kind of planting that seed of, you know, we have this more advanced treatment. Let's strongly consider that. And the patient might hold off a little bit, but they know it's there. Um, And so planting that seed and getting them aware of their condition and just knowing what's going on, I think is the biggest factor. So that instant feedback or that instant return, I think would be ideal, but I don't think we will see it a lot um, unless you have all these patients built up already for it. Right, right. And then you should have brought it in a long time before that too, right? right? So (laughs) when you've done this treatment on patients, what, uh, what are you expecting from them or their eyes to know it's successful? Are you, uh, you know, are you, you doing a questionnaire patient satisfaction? Like, Oh, did you feel really good or feel really better? Is that kind of how you gauge the success or how do you know that it's, it's worked for patients? I always say the symptoms and signs are dry. And, and we all know they don't correlate incredibly well. So obviously the patient's satisfaction, their happiness is super high on my list. Um, but you can't judge how, if the lipid flow works or not strictly based off of symptoms. Um, I, I do every time I see a patient, I do a mybomine gland evaluation on them with the mybomine gland expressor. Um, so it's a consistent force across the lid. So I have a grading of their oil glands before and after the procedure. Mm -hmm. And so the way you truly know if it works is, are their glands functioning? Did you stop the mybomine gland dysfunction? Um, and are they functioning out? And so getting a grading of the eyelids, both bottom and top, and um, looking at the clarity of the expressions, how many numbers of glands are expressing. Um, and obviously patient symptoms too, looking at um, on the keratograph, like we mentioned, we have the um, interferometry so we can see the actual oils on the eyelid. And so a bunch of different measurements that we can evaluate to see if it was successful or not. Um, but I'd say far and away is just looking at and, and observing the oils after they come out of their, after they come out of their glands and seeing how yeah. much change you had pre and post treatment. Yeah. I think that's so key. You know, there's a lot of people over the years that have purchased, uh, one of these instruments and paid all this money and, you know, and then what they find is that they end up not using it. And I think it's largely because, and I think you, you hit the, hit the golden ticket here is that if you're basing it based on what the patient tells you a week or two afterwards, that very rarely are you going to find that you're quote unquote successful if that's what you're basing success on. But I think you stated it very clearly that uh, if that dysfunction is when the glands aren't flowing, and if you can get a patient to go from no flow or less flow to more flow, then you're improving on the meibomian gland dysfunction. It's not called meibomian gland symptoms. It's called dysfunction. So I think that's the key thing is knowing whether you improved it, whether the patient feels better or not, you improved their eye function and it would go without saying that you would expect, uh, as the studies show with thermal pulsation, about 91% of people do notice a symptomatic improvement and that it lasts for a really long time. So I think, uh, I think your patients are, you know, in, in, in a really good place having you improved upon the aspects of their dry eye. And uh, 
What do you think, uh, what would you say to somebody who's, you know, in school or a young grad who's looking at joining a practice interested in doing dry eye? What kind of advice would you give to somebody who's, or maybe even a seasoned practitioner who wants to start a dry eye practice? What advice would you kind of give them in, in getting going? I think knowing the pathologic process in dry eye. And like, I think you mentioned at the top, when I was at Seattle with you, we read report after report, after study, after study, and just knowing all the different types of dry eye or the different contributors to dry eye and um, knowing, you know, what are the main factors to look out for, but um, knowing the process is one thing, but really looking and analyzing for a lot of the signs um, we'll, we miss a ton of stuff by just doing like sodium fluorescein staining. If you put in lysamine green, I think you're going to, your practitioner or whoever's, you know, your doctors that's trying to get into it more, they're going to see a lot more signs than they would have because lysamine green stains so much more than fluorescein does. And it's, you know, you can see different types of staining too. And, um, checking the eyelids on every patient, just doing a quick myobomine gland evaluation on every patient. They're going to pick up on a lot more dry eye and dry eye is tough because it's so subtle. And if you're, and if you're not actively looking for it and taking that extra step to look for it, you're going to have patients time after time, after time come through your chair and not have any symptoms until it's too late. And they're much more progressed in the disease process. And I always tell my patients, it's much easier to treat a problem before it's a problem then try to catch up on the tail end. And so that's why um, with my patients, I'm much more proactive. And as a, as a practice here, we're trying to be more proactive in getting in front of, of the problems before they start. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Fisher, I'm uh, sure excited and grateful that you've joined us for this episode. Make sure to like and subscribe down below. And uh, if there are future episodes that you're interested in learning more about, please let us know. Dr. Fisher, again, thank you for joining us, and thank you for listening in to the Optometric Insights Show.